Hi, this is Maurice Singer. Hi, I'm Corey Canton. And we are Life Per Square Foot. So today we are going to talk about finding and renovating a Brooklyn townhouse. And why one wants to do this, which maybe isn't a mystery, but also why people think they can't do it and speak a little bit about why we think they can. And uh, we have a perfect subject to be speaking to today um, because Maurice actually just bought his own townhouse and is midway through the process. Uh, maybe not midway, but you know we haven't actually started the physical renovation work, but we're almost done with all the pre-renovation work, which is, let's say, I guess, the first significant chapter of it. Certainly. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about this for a second. Why do people want to buy a Brooklyn townhouse? It's it seems kind of obvious, but you know maybe not. Like if you're used to living in the city, if there's one thing we don't have by living in a metropolitan area, that's a lot of space, right? And then by the same token, a lot of people move to the city and live in metropolitan areas because they specifically don't want to live in a suburban area and they want to live close to where they work. So what? It's basically the best of both worlds, really, because you have a house, you have a backyard, and you are, you know, you're not taking the commuter line into the city. Right. Um, Maybe you have more than two closets. Exactly. Um, beyond that, you actually have your own space. Um, you are, you know, besides that you do probably have, you know, two walls on either side maybe that connect to other buildings, um, you actually feel like you have a sense of privacy. Um, and beyond that, not only do you not have a landlord, but many of the townhouses are actually two or three family. And so a lot of people, the dream is to have an apartment that is income producing um, so that you can actually uh, kind of offset the cost of ownership and really buy a part of New York City um, and be able to stay here at a relatively low cost. Yeah, I mean, I, I really want to second the notion that having that sonic privacy uh, in your home in New York City is a dream of mine for, let's say, the 18 years that I lived in the city. I don't think I've ever lived in an apartment, and I've lived in many, where I didn't have at least one shared wall or even worse, like a party wall, which would be like a living room wall that's shared between two apartments. Um, and I don't think... I've ever had an apartment that I felt truly was sort private. of private and ha had, I don't think I've ever had an apartment that really was like a sanctuary. Uh, and that's something of a dream of mine always. So the prospect of buying a house, and even though it's, it's a fully attached house where you have other houses on both sides, like a townhouse, you still have, you know, like a foot and a half of brick separating you. So you're pretty much not going to hear them. I mean, and, and then, you know, knowing you, so Maurice is a huge design person. So, you know, I, I think that um, just the ability to, in, in your instance, renovate a house to fit exactly what you want. Like even if you have a, you know, an apartment, you know, there's only so much you can do with any particular floor plan. When you have a house, you can really almost like Legos build, you know, what you want within, you know, sort of the zoning regulations. So let's dive a little bit into why everybody isn't buying townhouses. Right. I mean, I think it's fair to say most people want this. The reason they don't is that I think there's a perception generally that one simply can't afford to buy a townhouse in New York. Um, and, you know, in large part, there are certain areas of the city where that might be true because a townhouse, even one that needs renovation in, you know, Manhattan or uh, in Brooklyn Heights or Cobble Hill is going to be insanely expensive. To, you know, add a little color to what you mean by expensive, mm -hmm. in Manhattan, it starts somewhere around $4 million. Yeah. Um, and in Brooklyn, interestingly enough, I did a quick search of Street Easy, and 
uh, townhouses will start around two hundred fifty thousand. Um, but let me let you know that Brooklyn is a really large borough, it's really big, really really big. Um, and so these are for unrenovated homes. Yes, these, these are, are these for, are for homes that need exactly. TLC. So that this is kind of like if you wanted to buy a shed right on a really small lot, it would be about two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. And if you wanted to let's say buy um, a unrenovated townhouse in Brooklyn Heights, it would be more like two or two and a half million. Right. So there's sort of this uh, kind of sliding scale about how much you're going to spend versus how far out you're going to go. Um, but really, we want to talk about that it's not as far out of reach as a lot of people think, and that there is a way to do this uh, in a way that um, is somewhat affordable. You know, searching for a house is really kind of a weedy experience. Um, you know, as a broker, I have walked countless clients um, through these houses that, you know, A, have no information. So you have like this one picture on, of the outside of the house. You have no idea what the thing looks like. You're not even let into, let's say, the bottom of an apartment because there's tenants in it. Um, and so it tends to be a little bit of a runaround. Um, or I like to say that it's, uh, the wild west of Brooklyn. If you want to kind of walk through the, the streets of, you know, bed and Bushwick, uh, going into, you know, sort of these boxes that you have no idea what you're going to be presented with. And of course, given that they're gut renovations, you have no idea what type of work sort of lies, you know, within these walls. Right. And, and that's kind of the big issue here is that, when you bring an inspector in to look at an apartment or a house, they can't actually cut anything open. They can't look inside the walls. They can't look under the floors. They can only look at what's visibly seen. Um, and when you're buying a house, unlike buying an apartment in a building, you're buying the entire mechanical and physical system that is contained within. You're responsible solely for everything in that house. You're responsible for the plumbing, the electric, if the joists are rotted through. These are all things that you're sort of taking on. Uh, somewhat without really knowing what they are because you can't see through walls. So, you know, you are buying kind of a mystery box unless your plan is to literally just gut the whole thing and rip out everything and just leave, you know, the framework on the sides. So what, when you were looking for your townhouse, what are you looking for? You know, there are varieties of lot sizes and obviously construction quality. Right. I mean, there's construction types. I mean, there's a few considerations and it kind of depends also on the neighborhood you're looking at. So, you know, I live in Williamsburg, you know, our office is here in Williamsburg. I was kind of hoping to stay in Williamsburg, which is what we're doing. Um, but, you know, every neighborhood kind of has an architectural character to it. Williamsburg, because of its history, just happens to have a lot of these what were called frame houses. So these are small two and three story homes that are built on like wood frames versus what a lot of people think about when they think of towns, townhouses or a brownstone is something in Bed-Stuy um, where you have these beautiful masonry built homes, which means they're built out of, you know, bricks or stone. Yeah, like the quintessential brownstone. So, you know, in addition to the decision about buying a frame house versus buying a masonry house, there's also obviously how big is the house and how big is the lot. So, you know, what I've found is that the smallest house I feel like I've seen is maybe 12 foot wide. Which is really, really, really small. Just like, like look at whatever room you're in right now and like walk across it with your feet one by one and figure out how wide 12 feet is. And then imagine that there's a staircase in that house. Right. And so you only have about, you know, 60% of that space. to play Exactly. So, so you feel like you might be a miniature person living in that house, um, like a sort of a clown car. Um, so there's that width. Um, but then there's also, you know, so that being the smallest, a 20 foot wide kind of being the ideal uh, size of a townhouse. But then there's also lot size um, and of course block. 
But lot size being if you're, let's say, 20 by 100, which is more or less your largest lot size. A lot of lots in like Bedside where you have these nice brownstones, like you typically find these 20 by 100 foot lots, which is a really, really nice size to play with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and more distance uh, from these neighbors that you would like to have some privacy from. Um, but it's kind of to say that I think that the Brooklyn neighborhoods that went through any sort of a heyday have really nice brownstone blocks and larger lots, whereas Williamsburg, which is kind of more of a hodgepodge given its last hundred year history has a whole variety of sort of triangular or different um, lot sizes and houses. Um, and that really, when you're looking to buy a house, that is in a way, that is the frame um, by which you're buying. It is the house itself as well as the lot that it's on and then whatever ability you have to sort of build up on. Um, so given you know that there's a, quite a variety, just to give our listeners a little bit of an idea of price point, um, what would you say sort of a rickety wood frame, smaller house, let's say 15, 16 feet wide on a 50 foot lot would go? Something that needs renovation at that size, you're probably looking more around, you know, one, three-ish. Um, and part of the reason for that is when you're buying a house, you have to think about the people you're competing with if you're buying this house for yourself. Because the other people in this market with a lot of cash to spend are developers. And typically, as a general rule, if you're going to look at any lot that's under 20 feet wide, you're probably looking at stuff that developers aren't interested in, which means it's going to be easier for you to purchase it. So, which, is, which is exactly what I did. Yeah. So yeah. to get into your search, you know, one thing that I know you've said to me is that when you found your house, um, which didn't take you that long because you're more or less always in the market, even if you're not particularly looking, yeah. um, when you saw it, it was in part because the equation worked, um, which is that everybody is looking at this and saying, okay, you know, this old yellow house from, you know, uh, when was it built? I think 1915. 1915. Not great construction. Somebody wasn't just going to walk in and live in it. So they had to figure out the renovation costs to then decide that it was worth more to do this than just buying something new. Um, and so, you know, you looked at this and said, okay, I think that I can do this. Um, so tell us a little bit about your allure to the house and, and I guess let's get into the how. Right. So you know, uh, the house that we bought is in Williamsburg. It's on a lot that's 18.3 feet wide by 75 feet deep. So it's it's a little narrower than your regulation size lot. It's a little shallower than your regulation. If the regular lot that we think of that developers like is this 20 by 100 lot, I'm buying something that's, you know, a few feet shy of that on each dimension. Um, the other question really becomes a question of what's called FAR, which is uh, floor-to-area ratio. Floor ratio. And that is for every single lot that exists all over New York, every lot has an FAR, which dictates how much square footage, residential square footage you can have on that lot. Which, if you think about it in practical terms, you know, if you have a small two-story house on a lot that's only, let's say, a total of 1,500 square feet, but because of the way the city has it classified, you could technically build 2,500 square feet of house on there. That goes from a really small house to a really big house if you're able to do the extension and then put another story on there. And that is exactly uh, what I'm doing with this house. So the house I bought is three stories. It's two-family. So you have a like an owner's duplex over like a garden rental. Uh, it's about 1,600 square feet, so it's pretty small for as far as houses are concerned. What we are ultimately doing, though, is we are doing an extension of the house, which is pushing it out uh, about seven and a half feet and then adding a fourth story to it. And how large will it be when you're finished? 
Um, if you want to include the fact that we're going to finish the basement, which right now is not finished, and also uh, there's going to be a, what's called a bulkhead on top, which is that sort of small space that you walk up to in order to get out on. It's like a little deck. sunroom on your roof. It's kind of like a little sunroom on the roof. Yeah. Um, inclusive of that, the whole thing, top to bottom, is going to be uh, three thousand one hundred and fifty square feet when it's done. All right. Which is a lot bigger than sixteen hundred square feet. A little bit bigger, yeah. A little bit. And, and so in a way, what you're looking at when you're looking at a renovation project is the dream that the renovation proje project can hold. So it's legally allowed to be a certain size. Um, and so it is, you know, how large you can make it. And then, of course, let's get into how you're going to do that. Because one of the things that I've found in working with buyers is that, you know, it's one thing to buy something for 1.3, you put 20 or 25% down, um, and, you know, you have a you know traditional mortgage and you own it. A whole other thing to buy something and then have a, let's say, $600,000 construction budget. Where do you get the $600,000? You know, you want to make sure you have an understanding by running comps reports, which is valuation reports on what a house that is fully renovated is going to be worth in this neighborhood that you're looking at. So we bought a house for essentially 1.475. I'm relatively sure that once I'm done with this renovation and I'm increasing the square footage by the amount that I'm increasing it to, that it should be worth anywhere between 2.8 and $3 million. So that's a very important number to have in your head because... We're going to leverage ourselves in terms of the bank in order to get the money to do this and then ultimately refinance once it's worth a lot more money. Does that make sense? It does, but I think there's another step to this. So ultimately, yes, you're going to have a much more expensive house and then you're going to refi it and you're going to be able to get 75% of $2.8 million as opposed to 75% of $1.475. But how do you get, get it from 1.475 to 2.8 million? Where does the construction budget come from? The, the financing aspect is is like this. If you can find a lender, and we're talking maybe not big banks like Chase and Citibank, but smaller lenders, which I use one called Bethpage Federal Credit Union, this is a lender who is willing to loan you up to 90% of the appraised value of this home. So we put down 25% on this home. That means we can then take out what's called a HELOC, or home equity line of credit, uh, for the additional twenty uh, percent, because we have twenty-five, we have seven, we have a loan of seventy-five percent from the bank. We can now take up an additional fifteen percent to get us to ninety percent of the value. So, a and how does this work? So, it, a home equity line of credit is basically kind of like just like applying for a personal loan, but it's a little different in the sense that it's almost like opening up a checking account with a bunch of money in it, and. As you draw money out of that account, you pay interest on whatever you have drawn out until you put it back. So a home equity line of credit can be good for you know 20 years. Like you could take a home equity line of credit for $300,000 right now on your home, not touch it for 15 years, and it won't cost you a dime. Uh, until you start pulling that money out, then you start paying interest on the amount of money you've drawn out. And what is the interest rate of the money drawn out? So for a bank, like let's say, you know, for larger banks, they're going to charge you a higher interest rate, but it's called prime. Uh, it varies depending on what standard interest rates are. But right now it's about, uh, I think, 4.9. All right. Not too bad. Yeah. Uh, so basically now you have the HELOC, you have the house, and now you have to renovate it. Right. Getting all of this together takes some time. So I believe you rented both of your apartments out in the interim to have some... I did, to basically help pay for the mortgage, because right now we own this house that we're paying on, and if it's empty, that's a lot of money to shell out, in addition to where we're living, which is in another apartment. So we rented it out short term, and I was pretty thrilled that we were able to do that. Uh, and then it becomes, as you said, an issue of getting all your ducks in a row. So the first ducks that we're talking about are going to be your architect and your contractor, in that order. Architects 
you know, there are many different kinds of them. You can hire an architect that's going to be extremely expensive, who's going to really spearhead the design process of this. It's going to help you uh, figure out how to lay things out, uh, any architectural flourishes, and they're going to charge you a pretty penny for that. Their other part of their job is to navigate the DOB because you have to pull permits before you can actually start construction on something like this. The time it takes to pull permits varies on what you're doing. If you buy a brownstone and you're not changing the physical structure of the building, you're not doing an extension, you're not adding any floors to it, you're just renovating the inside, even if it's a gut, it'll only take you a month, maybe a month and a half to get permits in which you could actually start that work. As soon as you start changing the physical structure of the building, it's going to take longer. If you're doing an extension and you're adding a story to the house, which is what we're doing, six months. Um, in terms of choosing my architect, you know, I'm approaching this entire enterprise in a way that I can save as much money as possible because I don't have unlimited funds here. I'm pretty confident in my ability to design something. So I really design my own floor plans. And as a real estate agent, we look at floor plans all the time. So, you know, one of the things that we are good at is figuring out how to lay things out. Yeah, Maurice alters our floor plans all the time to people's different ideas of what they should look like. I love doing it. So Maurice has a very good design eye. Um, so I think that for you, you weren't... you didn't have the uh, funds or the interest in paying someone to design your house for you. Right. I was really looking for an architect that was more master of the Department of Buildings because that's kind of the sticky wicket in the whole process. Um, there's so much logistical red tape that's involved in getting permits. Uh, and there's whole industries that have cropped up around this, which is like expediters, who are people that you pay to push things through the DOB faster. Um, and, and that exists purely because the bureaucracy is so muddied. Yeah. It sounds um, kind of like a, a middleman. Basically. Yeah. This. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I ultimately through some recommendations from people in our, uh, industry, uh, found an architect, uh, based out of Flushing Queens who has a whole kind of stable of people that you need to sort of get this done. He has under his roof draftsmen. He has uh, uh, engineers who are on staff and he is absolutely not known for good design. So all I had to do was show him the sort of rough plans that I had mocked up, say, put these into sort of proper plans, get this to the DOB as fast as possible. Uh, he was the one that told me it would take about six months and he actually had a fully approved uh, set of plans for me within, I think, three and a half. Wow. So that's pretty great. Yeah. Are and you at all nervous about what your house as a first-time architect is going to look like? A little bit, um, except, you know, it's it's not like some wild, wacky design. Like, it's all just rectangles, and so you can't really mess it up too badly as long as you, you know, afford the proper amount of space for, like, a kitchen counter and, and you have an idea of how big a dining room table is, then you should be fine. So let's get into the next step of the process. So um, if I recall, you have met with countless contractors. I mean... I don't know about you, like, I think people tend to have a perception of contractors in the same way people have a perception of real estate agents. Like anything, you know, there's a spectrum of quality that you can get. And you can really think of contractors in two grades. You have your commercial grade contractors and your residential grade contractors. Commercial guys are the guys who build uh, apartment buildings or renovate restaurants or storefronts. And then the residential guys are, of course, people who do private residences. So, you know, what's interesting for many of us who've lived in New York rentals, which I think is everybody um, in New York City, uh, that there is a different decision choice when you own the property. Um, and obviously, same thing with restaurants, given the turnover of New York City restaurants. So what you're saying is that um, there are actually different contractors that you would hire for your own home. 
Exactly. Yeah. If you have an, an unlimited budget and you want things to be done perfectly, which is to say you want all the lines to be plumb, you want your, you know, backsplash to be tiled with the grout lines being the same, you know, same width and dimension all the way through, you want uh, it's basically it comes down to attention to detail. You can pay somebody to have that attention to detail, um, but it costs you. Um, you can get a contractor for really cheap. Uh, and is it possible that they're going to make some mistakes that, you know, the door is going to be opening the wrong way when it should open in, it's going to open out. Uh, the tile is going to be a little wonky. Sure. And if you're okay with that, because like the general sort of purpose of the room is being served, you can save a lot of money. The problem is when you're renovating your own home, it's really, really easy to get sort of caught up in this snowballing effect where you're presented with decisions. Like you can go with the cheap one, the middle one, or the high one. And the difference in cost between the cheap and the high one might be $5,000, which if you're spending $600,000, isn't that much. But if you're presented with that decision every single day, and every day you're tempted to go with the high one, you end up spending you know, an additional $200,000 in the end than you expected to. Well, that kind of reminds me, honestly, of, of going shopping in the mall when I was a kid. So that like once you're on a roll and you're buying a whole bunch of things, it's kind of like, why not buy this extra shirt? Mm -hmm. But there also comes this moment where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I just spent $500. And you basically just walk yourself right out of the mall. Right. Um, you need discipline. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of contractors, uh, if I recall, you had a wildly different um, um, I guess, in terms of construction budgets that you were given? Uh, anytime I talk to anybody who's gone through this, they all say kind of one of two things or both things, which is whatever you think it's going to cost, double it, and however long you think it's going to take, double that. How um, encouraging. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty scary. Um, I, I think I've reached out to probably 12 or 13 contractors, and by reached out, which is to say I've sent them the full DOB-approved plans plus a bid sheet where I've sort of itemized as to, with as much precision and detail as possible every little thing I want them to do. And I've probably had maybe six contractors actually get back to me, which is telltale about the fact that, you know, Right now in New York City, there's so much renovation that goes on that most contractors, for the most part, don't have time. There's not a lot of at least good or halfway decent contractors sitting around with nothing to do. So I think at the low end, the lowest price quote I got for my project was $550,000, not including materials. The high end, $1.5 million. So that's quite a range. And... Um at this point, because Maurice is midway through this process, uh, have you chosen a contractor? We're leaning towards one. I'm still waiting on a few to get back to us. And, you know, there's an old adage that you don't go with the cheapest guy. You know, maybe you go with one in the middle. Um, yeah, I think it's it's not the not too hot, not too cold sort of thing. Yeah, like the Goldilocks kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's really, really hard to resist the temptation to go with that cheap number. Um, and I will say that in past jobs, when I've done kitchens and baths in my last apartment, um, I did go with the cheapest guy. And by and large, I was actually pretty happy about it. With any contractor, once you get involved with them, they all have a threshold or a certain point in which they basically say, fuck it. You're only as important to that contractor uh, in relation to his other jobs. If you're an important job to that contractor, he's gonna treat you as such. If suddenly other work comes up and your job is less important, there is a certain point in which he's not going to care as much. And by that, you have to understand that what a contractor does, they're not really doing the work themselves. They have basically teams of people who do this work. Um, they have their own team, and then they subcontract out your work to plumbers and electricians, people they bring on. The contractor's job is to sort of oversee this and make sure everything is done properly. And when they give you a quote, they are giving you the price of that work plus the material plus their premium price for managing this job for you. And you don't necessarily know what percentage they're taking for themselves versus what percentage is actually the cost of the work. 
Uh, and that speaks to a lot, um, the experience and the, let's say, quality of the contractor. Somebody who's really high grade is probably going to take a lot more off the top than somebody who's, you know, let's say new. So just to uh, kind of, I guess, go back to this, where are you in the process? So once you start construction, uh, what is the estimation of time? Uh, you know, for my job, the low end I've been told was six months and the high end was a year. Um, I've been budgeting a year for the actual construction itself, and I'm hoping that it comes in sooner. Um, one thing you can do if you're in this situation is that you can incentivize your contractor by putting into a contract, and you will sign a contract with your contractor, um, <laughs> that you know if they finish in X amount of months, there's a bonus. If they finish, uh, if it takes longer than that, like let's say, they, you know, if I want my contractor to finish in seven months, I'll say I'll offer him some sort of percentage bonus. If it takes longer than 11 months, then there's going to be a penalty. So you know, there's only so much that a contractor will agree to, but something like this will hopefully incentivize them to move quicker. So going back to what people have told you, which is that it takes twice as long and it costs twice as much, um, how are you doing in terms of your shopping list uh, in so far as how much you thought it was going to cost and where you're at now? You know, so far, we haven't actually spent any money yet, but it's about trying to have like an, an ethos or an approach to it to be disciplined. It's about just making decisions upfront about what you're going to spend money on and what you're not going to. And there are certain things that are curable and certain things that are not. So we're going to spend money on the facade of the house. We're going to spend money on our floors because flooring is something that once it's down and once you've moved in, to try and change that and sand it down is always a nightmare because just the simple act of sanding, it kicks up dust everywhere. And if you have your possessions in, no matter how diligent they are at trying to cover it, it will find a way in. So, but like in that sense, if you wanted to change out your Ikea kitchen cabinets into something much nicer later on, pretty exactly. easy to do. A lot easier to do. Um, and that's kind of our approach right now. Just, you know, we're going to save money and not do expensive kitchens. I mean, uh, we've looked at kitchen cabinets, you know, the Ikea cabinets for my kitchen will be about $3,000. Um, I've seen some cabinet systems that would cost, you know, $60,000 uh, yeah. and, and everything in between. Um, so trying to be judicious about that is sort of our approach. And, um, you know, picking a contractor that uh, I think is going to treat my job as a priority. And the contractor I'm kind of leaning towards right now is somebody that's only had his own contracting firm for two years, but prior to that, he was a project manager for a really large construction firm. So he's been privy and part of large complex jobs and he's managed those. And now he's sort of a fledgling contractor on his own and looking for jobs of, of this scope and size. So, you know, this is a situation where I will probably be his biggest project. And my hope is that because he has the experience on big projects already, he'll know what he's doing. So this is all pretty exciting. Um, but let's get to our final point and talk again about our listeners and, you know, whether or not this type of project is something for them. Um, so, you know, just to say personally, um, I am not nearly as hands-on or exact as Maurice. Um, so I think that Maurice, when he says that he is, um, you know, detail-oriented and has a level of discipline and exactitude, that is absolutely correct. Um, also, a really good design sense, um, uh, as well as real estate background. Um, but, you know, many people would love to do this. So what would you say... Um, who does this project, do you think, speak to? Uh, what are the pitfalls? What advice do you have to give our listeners? It's about a question or a sliding scale of time versus money. That if money isn't an issue for you, if you don't have any budgetary constraints, then you probably don't need to listen to this because then 
it doesn't matter. Um, you can pay you know people more money to manage these prob- processes and problems for you. But if you're trying to keep this under a specific budget, trying to keep it into a low budget, that then requires that you be more detail-oriented and have greater oversight over what you're doing. Ultimately, you're in a way becoming your own GC. While you have a GC, uh, a general contractor, you know, ultimately it is your house. And so you are micromanaging this project. It's basically just an endless legion of little decision, little and big decisions that have to be made. And there's so many things that change over the course of time, even through the design phase. We're obviously not in the construction phase just yet. It's just in the design phase alone. As diligent as I've been to try and sort of prevent myself from having to edit the plans multiple times, which we've already had to do. And part of that's just because, you know, ideas strike you later on and you're like, oh, you know what? We should have a laundry chute from this floor to this floor because it would be perfect. Um, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> I, um, I want a laundry chute. Laund- yeah, I can't wait for the laundry chute. Like every little decision is rabbit hole. Just Figuring out toilets is kind of a rabbit hole. Like we went to the Toto showroom in the city uh, and talked to a woman there who was amazing just because like the vast amount of knowledge she had about toilets blew my mind. Um, that's her job, but it was still, it was impressive to see it. And even just talking to her, I learned so much about toilets that now every time I go into a bathroom, I'm thinking about them and sort of dissecting and analyzing that toilet, um, which is to say... Which is why I'm really excited, by the way, that you're renovating this house because Mm -hmm. I am not going to dissect the toilets. And when I have a client that is renovating and wants to have some toilet advice, I now know. You you know who to come to. Now, there's there's some backlash to this and some downside, which, you know, even talking to my own parents who have done this a couple of times now, there's this joke that if your relationship can survive the renovation or the building of a home, then it's accomplished something significant because it's it can be stressful and and that's already played out a little bit in my own relationship partly because my nature you know in a positive sense is detail oriented in a negative sense it becomes obsessive um and, and that can cause strain so you know i i do have an obsessive personality which helps and inter- helps me in terms of trying to uh, be aware of all these decisions and hurdles that have to be sort of tackled. But the downside is that you start to go down, again, this, a rabbit hole on something. Um, and the more information you're taking in and processing, the harder it is for you to ultimately make a decision. Uh, and that can take time. And ultimately, we hope that that in the end, that the time basically saves you money. Um, it but, should. But, you know, I, I think you had told me the other night that, you know, there are some sort of random pitfalls that you'll fall into. Right. There's, there's only, as diligent as you are, you can't predict and plan for everything. Um, case in point, what we're going through right now, we were supposed to start officially demolition on the house like three weeks ago, uh, and we haven't been able to do that because we, uh, one of the many sort of uh, bureaucratic department of buildings hurdles you have to go through is an asbestos inspection, where basically anytime you're going to knock something down that was built a long time ago, and this house was, you have to have a licensed uh, environmental asbestos inspector come in, inspect it, and file a report with the city. Uh, and just recently, the city, I guess, conducted a sting and a arrested- sting I on think the asbestos it, guys? Uh, on the environmental okay. you know, remediation industry. Uh, and they arrested, I think, 17 <laughs> licensed licensed asbestos inspectors here in the city. And unfortunately, yours. Unfortunately, one of them was 
my guy. So what happened was a letter was sent to the house uh, informing me that the asbestos report that we had submitted is now invalid because of this reason and that we have to have it redone. And since we're not living in that house right now, um, the letter was not found uh, until much later. So I think the letter was sent out like three ah, months ago. this is new. So yeah, so this is a new discovery and is very frustrating. So we can't start the demolition because now I'm fine trying to find a new asbestos inspector. And it feels like everybody's prices have gone up. I think because like the whole industry has been shaken. So now um, anybody who might have, you know, sort of done a casual inspection is now terrified and going to do some serious intensive, you know, uh, over the top inspection. Mm. Well, let me say this. As your partner, I'm super excited about all of the interesting stories that I'll get to here and uh, all of the detail that you're going to learn. And we very much hope that when we talk in our next episode, uh, when you know perhaps we are under construction or even you know throwing laundry down that chute, uh, that we hear that things come out a little bit more as planned. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Thank you so much, Maurice. Uh, Thank you, Corey. I'm Corey Canton. Uh, I'm Maurice Singer. And we're Life First Perfect.